Well, good morning, Redeemer. Uh, today, I have the honor of, of speaking to you from the Word of God. Um, you know, I think probably those of you who know me probably would agree that I, I'm kind of a practical application guy, um, that I struggle, to, I struggle to engage in the world of ideas and theory unless I can see how it relates to real life. And I think that's why I was so drawn to Psalm 127 um, when it came up uh, just a few weeks ago in our CBR reading. Um, there is such amazing practical application for, uh, for each of us. It challenged me uh, in, in these last days of, of even processing it. And so I, just, I was just drawn to want to dig deeper into this passage. So when I was asked to speak today, my text choice was actually pretty easy. You know, there's, a, there's, there's no shortage of resources available to us today um, that would propose to have the secret of having a, a happy and meaningful life. As Americans, we spend billions of dollars on books and conferences and other things that claim to have the secret sauce to purpose and happiness. So I am excited uh, to share with you today that I can, like Mattress Mac, I can save you money um, because I believe that this text provides not only the best, but it on, the only accurate blueprint for a happy and meaningful and purposeful life. So let me, let me pray with us before we jump into the text. Heavenly Father, we come to you today with humble hearts. God, I think of the, the psalmist who, who wrote, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So God, today, would you teach us to love your law? Would you open our eyes to the, to the wondrous message that you have for us in Psalm 127? Father, give us ears to hear what you say to each of us today. Speak that we may listen. And it's in your holy name we pray, amen. So my message today will be made up of three parts. And the first part I want to explore what I believe to be is the, is the meaning or the message of this text. And then secondly, we'll examine the illustration that's provided within the text. And then finally, I'm gonna summarize with some, with some personal applications. So... As always the case, it's always helpful to, to establish some context before getting into the weeds of, a, of any particular text. And so we, within the Psalms, they often have headings. And I think the heading of this Psalm provides two clues that kind of give us at least some sense of context. Um, we read before verse one that it is a, first that it is a song of ascent and it is of Solomon. Now, if you, you know, Psalm 127 is actually at the very center of, of 14 Psalms of Ascent that begin with verse 120 and ends with 134. Each of these 14 Psalms all begins with, it has something in there about it being a song, a Psalm of Ascent. And, you know, there's, there's many ideas and theories about, about why they're called the Songs of Ascent. 
but I think what is universal as you, as you look at them is this idea that, that an ascent is an upward focus. It's a looking up. It's a, it's a going up. And you see that throughout many of, the, many of these psalms. Psalm 120 says, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. 123, I lift my eyes to you, the the one enthroned in heaven. 125, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. And these are just a few examples of these Psalms' upward focus. And I think we see the same thing in 127, even in these words, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So the context of this psalm is the same as all of the psalms in a set. It is a call to to lift our eyes, to stop looking at ourselves, to look up and to pursue our great God and Savior who, who reigns in heaven where he is high and lifted up. And then secondly, the writer says that this psalm is of Solomon. Now scholars have had some disagreement on whether this psalm was written by Solomon or for Solomon by his father David. Many of the translations use the phrase of Solomon, but some use by or even for. The the, the fact is, I don't think it really matters. I mean, either David was instructing his son on the proper mindset that he had to have as he began this magnificent building project of building the temple of the Lord, or Solomon's preaching to himself on who the true builder of the temple is and reminding him of what his role is. As I read it, I think the pronoun you and the emphasis on children in the second half sounds a lot like fatherly advice. But I don't think that authorship is critical to to rightly understanding the psalm. So with that in mind, let's jump into the text. And starting with verse one and two, which I think it communicates a clear and powerful message. And I think that message in short is that there are two types of striving in this life. One that ends in vanity, anxiousness, fatigue, and another that leads to fruitfulness, peace, and rest. And the key to rightly understanding is is, is rightly understanding the difference between the Lord's building and watching and our building and watching. I think it's vital to to see that building and watching are meant both to be literal and metaphorical in this text. I mean, the immediate text, of course, is the the literal building and then the preserving and protecting of, of, of the temple. But then as we see in verse three through five, it seems to also apply to the the building and watching over a family. And thus anything we strive to build and preserve in this life. So what does it mean? What does it mean that unless the Lord builds or watches over, that it's in vain? Well, I think as a context for this, I, I, I thought in my own, own way, over the last couple of years, I've had the kind of the fun of, of watching um, not only our church building getting built, um, but also my own home. We had, the, we had the privilege of building a home a couple of years ago. 
And what I found, you know what is, what is true of both of those is that I found that the building process had, uh, had an architect whose design was to design the structure and it also had a builder. And the builder's job was to, was to oversee the project. His, his job was to be, he was responsible for making sure that what was constructed matched the architect's design. And then finally, there were a variety of, of different tradesmen who actually did the, the physical construction work. And I think the practical application here is that unless an architect designs a structure and a builder coordinates and oversees the project, the trades are working in vain. I mean, think about it. They've got no blueprints. They've got no project plan. There's no schedule and no materials. I mean, imagine a bunch of framers, roofers, and bricklayers or whatever trying to construct a building without those things. It's probably not a stretch to say their work would be in vain, correct? Or even worse, imagine say that one of our, let's say one of our plumbers, hey, we were building, one of the plumbers came in, he decided to disregard the, the architect's plans. And he didn't want to listen to, to, to Bill, our builder, and he decided to operate. And he kind of got one day on a napkin. He kind of sketched out what he thought it should look like. And he started building. He started doing, he started working his part and doing all the work of the tradesmen. Well, I think it's clear his work would be in vain as well, right? And I think what this psalm is saying is that what is true of the construction world is also true of our lives. And yet, most of humanity prefers to foolishly strive to operate as the architect, the builder, and all the tradesmen of our lives. And it's all outside of God's design and his plans. And I think it's safe to say that this explains why there are so many people, especially in America, who are workaholics, they are depressed, anxious, fearful, exhausted, and hopeless. And I dare say it might even apply to some of us in this room. You eat the bread of anxious toil, as, a, as the psalm says. But the good news is that Psalm 127 is not just a warning. It's also a recipe. I think if you, could, if you could articulate the converse of this psalm, then it would read, when the Lord is the builder of the house, the workers can work joyfully within reasonable hours and rest peacefully at night. Hmm. You see, the message in these verses is not that we shouldn't strive to build or to preserve and watch over things in this life. It's not a call to slothfulness, it's a call to humility and submission. But as we know, that is, of course, is diametrically opposed to our sinful nature. I mean, by nature, we want to be in charge. We want to be God. We say like Billy Joel, this is my life, leave me alone. And thus we live in a world that is a hot broken mess because like a bunch of tradesmen who foolishly think of ourselves and architects or builders, we go on about our, our building our own little kingdom. 
or as the Old Testament puts it, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I think the plea of Psalm 27 is a lot like the plea of Jesus in Matthew 11, where Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Why? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you hear the message? Stop working for yourselves and start working for me. Work as one of my tradesmen or watchmen. You'll find your work to be pleasurable, purposeful, free of anxiety. The yoke of autonomy and self-reliance is burdensome. It leads to stressful days and sleepless nights. That's why I so love, I hope you love the last phrase of verse two. Why should you do this? For he gives his beloved sleep. I love that. This is the why. Why do we abandon our life of autonomous kingdom building and take up his yoke? Because his yoke is easy and you will find rest for your souls because he indeed gives his beloved sleep. But of course, we have to notice that within this phrase is probably the most critical word maybe of this whole text. Because notice he says, who does he give the sleep to? He gives to his beloved sleep. Psalm 127 is only hopeful if you are one of his beloved. Like a 17th century preacher and writer, Thomas Brooks, he wrote about this phrase this way. He said it denotes a peculiar rest. It is a rest particular to sons, to saints, to heirs, to beloved ones. This rest is a crown that God sets only upon the head of saints. It is a gold chain that he only puts about his children's necks. This rest is a tree of life that is proper and peculiar to the inhabitants of that heavenly country. Concerning this verse, Spurgeon wrote, he says, go ye overreaching misers. Go ye grasping ambitious men. I envy not your life of inquietude. The sleep of statesmen is often broken. The dream of the miser is always evil. The sleep of the man who loves gain is never hardy. But God gives by contentment his beloved sleep. Hmm. So, I think that covers the message of the psalm. Now let's explore its illustration. I don't know about you, but you know, kind of, upon first reason, it's easy to kind of perceive that there's kind of this, feels like there's almost like this disconnect between verses one and two and verses three through five, right? Like, almost like, like bro, left turn, and he starts talking about kids. But I think upon further exam, I would condemn that it's not a disconnect at all. It's a beautiful illustration that's highly relevant. 
I imagine I don't have to tell many of you here in this room that the work of raising children is one that most of us can relate to. And so let's, I wanna take this concept and let's look at verses three through five through the lens of verse one and two. Again, I don't have to convince you that children require work, right? A lot of it. I mean, I would never, um, I would never advise telling a pregnant lady that, that carrying a child isn't work, correct? <laughs> you deserve every bruise and scar that you probably would get. And of course, the next step is rightly called labor for a very good reason. And of course, once they, they arrive, the, the task only gets more challenging, right? Parenting is not a job for the slothful. But notice the wording of verse three. Children are a heritage from the Lord. And they are his reward to us. God's the architect. He's the builder and protector. And as parents, we are merely tradesmen called to raise them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. I think no one articulates this, this, this picture of God's sovereignty in our role as parents um, and, 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 and the author of life better than David in Psalms 139. For it is you who created me, created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. And a couple of verses later, he doesn't stop with the, with the pre-birth process. He goes on to say, your eyes saw me when I was formless. And get this one. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. Did you hear that? What's he saying? Parents, you get the great privilege of watching over and protecting your children. And you get the wonderful responsibility of building character and virtue into them. And hopefully one day you will have the privilege of, of launching them out into the world, as, it, as the text says, as straight and beautiful, God-honoring arrows as in the hand of a warrior. But make no mistake, your kids are God's project. They're his heritage, his reward. They're his arrows, not yours. And the truth is that unless God watches over them, there are thousands of ways that they can be harmed under your most watchful eye. And unless God builds, your most diligent parenting will be in vain. Now, a truth can be hard to hear for some of us, especially new parents. <laughs> but I... I have to tell you, there is no formula 
that your children will be guaranteed to turn out a certain way if you follow these steps to the letter. I knew it would be nice if there were, wouldn't it? But I can tell you, I have seen the godliest and the most vigilant parents who have had one or more of their children stray badly. And I have also seen some of the most remarkable young men and women who love the Lord and would be a blessing to any parent who came out of the most broken of homes. Scripture provides a lot of counsel about raising children. But we must be aware of our role. I think this applies, I think we can apply this context to, to what, what Paul says in another context in 1 Corinthians, where he's describing the relationship of, of, of his role and, and comparing it to Apollos. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his, only, his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. I can tell you I have seen parents who take far too much credit for their children's success And I've seen others who absorb far too much blame for their children's failures. But I think the verse, the principle of verses one and two is applicable here. Now, to be clear, I'm not instructing parents of a newborn to go off the clock at 6 p.m. and rest peacefully through the night, right? But I am saying that over the course of the child-rearing years, there is a great peace found in striving to be good stewards of the precious gift that God has given you. But at the same time, rest in the knowledge that all of their days were written and planned before a single one of them began. So you faithfully plant and you diligently water and then you trust and you pray for God to bring the growth. I mean, how many children have been deeply harmed by well-meaning parents who are determined to raise their kids in their image and for their glory, even if they disguise it as for God's? And sadly, how many parents are driven to deep despair and are consumed with sleepless nights pondering where in the world they went wrong. Take heart, parents. God could have chosen a thousand different illustrations to display the truth of one and two, but he chose parenting. And I wonder if maybe that's just because this is an area where we are maybe most inclined to forget that unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. And unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchmen stay alert in vain. And quickly, I don't want, I don't want to pass over. There's a, this wonderful image in verse five where it says, happy is the man who has filled his quiver with them. 
They will never be put to shame when they speak with their enemies at the gate. Now, what I think is going on here is this is an amazing image of another way that God provides sleep and rest for those he loves. The picture here is it likely of an older man or an older woman being confronted by those who would, who would seek to harm him at the city gate, as it says. But behind him is an army of grown children and grandchildren with locked arms saying, not on our watch. Our children are God's means of providing great rest, especially in our later years. I told her I was going to do this. In our family, I think of our great matriarch, Baba. Many of you know her. She's here today. Baba, raise your hand. She, had a, she actually had a birthday this week. I heard it was 39. Right? Uh, <laughs> um, this is Carolyn's mom. And Carolyn, uh, Barbara, has been blessed. I hope I got my facts straight here. She has been blessed with three kids, two stepkids, five children-in-law, including myself, the best. <laughs> In addition, she's also surrounded by, I believe it's 13 grandchildren and five great-grandchildren. And the point is, you don't mess with Baba. <laughs> because if you do, you will have no less than 28 people who will step between you and her and fiercely say, you gotta go through us first. Right? We honor, we love this lady. She has served us well, and she has a family who loves her well, who protects her and guards her. I think of another example. She just recently, she moved across, uh, she just moved to the neighborhood right across the street. And, and what I can tell you is that <clears throat> she hardly had to lift a finger. Her family took care of every part of the selling, packing, and moving process. I think literally about all she had to do was drive from the old house to the new one. God provides rest to his beloved. Finally, I want to close with some application points in the form of a quadrant grid. As you look at this, I think Psalm 27 speaks into two issues. One of purpose and one of effort. Who is the chief builder and protector? And how are you going about your building and protecting? So as I briefly walk through these four quadrants, my prayer is that, that God would open your eyes to examine and, and that you might honestly see which quadrants that you exist in. I'm gonna start with quadrant D as this is often the most tragic. At its worst, this is the man who builds his self-made dreams with reckless abandon. I call the quadrant the American Idol quadrant because ironically, this can be the type of person that others most often idolize or emulate. And whether it's in entertainment or sports or business or politics or even religion, these are the people who often burn the brightest and crash the hardest. 
You see, when you expend unbridled energy climbing the highest mountain with the greatest speed and effort only to arrive at the summit and realize you climbed the wrong mountain. The aftermath is often tragic. Many in this category, in their pursuit and despair, depression, addictions, violence, or even suicide. I don't need to give you examples of this quadrant. We all know them or about them, or we are them. If this describes you in any way, I plead with you to run. You're going the wrong way. I look here, I see the youth here in the front row, which is a beautiful sight, by the way. And you guys, you guys are, get influenced to want to be told who to emulate, who to idolize. Far too often, guys, it's, these, it's the ones in this quadrant that's not your idol. Scripture describes it like this in Ecclesiastes. I saw that all labor and all skillful work is due to one person's jealousy of another. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. The fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and a pursuit of the wind. And he goes on in verse seven. Again, I saw futility under the sun. There is a person without a companion, without even a son or brother. And though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asked, and depriving myself of good things. This too is futile and a miserable task. Quadrant C. Now I would guess that probably, maybe not a ton of us here fall into, primarily into quadrant D. But C, I would contend, is far more populated and it's just as dangerous. I call this quadrant the American Dream Quadrant because this is where so many of us purposely or functionally live. This is the work hard so you can play hard quadrant. Work's not the end, it's the means to buy more toys, to take longer, better vacation, to live in nicer homes, to drive nicer cars, and to retire in opulent comfort, touring the world, collecting seashells and doilies. The fact is, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, most of us here exist in this quadrant, at least to some degree. While those in the prosperity gospel circles may argue differently, I would strongly contend that God is not the builder of this house. We are. In light of eternity, our self-serving work is in vain. We eat the bread of anxious toil, bread, toil. It leads to restless anxiety, deep dissatisfaction as we pursue more and more stuff in hopes of maybe finally having enough to find contentment and happiness. But like quadrant D, it's a dry hole. On to quadrant B. Hmm. 
Now, I will admit, it's with some trepidation that I, that I expound on this quadrant because this is the ditch that I often find myself in. And some of you know me will say, amen. <laughs> I call it the religious Pharisee quadrant because while you may sincerely desire godly purposes and even acknowledge that God is the architect, you can sometimes functionally operate as if you are the chief builder or the watchman. Your excessive hours, ability, inability to say no to, to any ministry project, communicate that somehow God needs you to get his work done. It may be his idea, but it sure ain't getting done, or at least not done well without you. Now, if you identify with this quadrant, let me plead to you as I plead to myself. God doesn't need us to fulfill his purposes. In Matthew 16, Jesus doesn't say that you will build his church or even that we, meaning he and us, will build his church. What does he say? He says, I will build whose church? My church. I will build my church. Notice whose church it is and who does the building. But as B-types, unfortunately, get confused with both of those facts occasionally. To paraphrase Jeff Foxworthy, if you, if you find yourself on the, on, the, on the edge of ministry burnout, if you're frustrated with the laziness and ineffective of those who work around you because they're not carrying their weight, or you lay awake at night and you're worried about the short-term or the long-term future of your little ministry area, you may be in quadrant B. And finally, we land in quadrant A. This is the Psalm 127 quadrant. This is the child of God who works joyfully with the knowledge that God is the chief architect, he's the builder, and he's the watchman who graciously allows, him, allows us to work as a minor tradesman in a spectacular building project of his church that has spanned every generation and every corner of the globe. He is building his church and he graciously allows us to participate in our little way. So whether you do vocational ministry or, or you make or sell widgets or work in any one of a thousand different occupations, your trade, your true trade is a disciple maker. Whether it's to your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, or just random acquaintances, your craft is to emulate Jesus and point people in his direction. And therefore, regardless of what you do or where you do it, what we do is we serve. Every day we, we love, we give, we comfort, we forgive, we encourage, we share, we sacrifice, we listen, we pray, we speak, and we help. 
These are the tools of our craft and all is for his glory and to build his kingdom, not ours. And in this way, you can wake up and go home every day at a reasonable hour and you rest peacefully at each night, tired, but grateful that you had the privilege today of working at the pleasure of the builder, creator, and protector of all things. I can tell you my best night's sleep is when I literally can lay in bed and I just reflect, fall asleep thinking about, God, who is it that you allowed me to, to be a blessing to today? Whose life was a little better or encouraged more like you because I was in it? Thank you. I got you let me do a little bit of your work. That will send you on a restful night's sleep. I promise. If you are here as a follower of Jesus and some, maybe you're feeling guilty or even ashamed that, that maybe you don't see yourself in this quadrant, at least nearly not like you should, then my encouragement is look up. Because you know what? God is in the process of building and watching over you as well. You're part of the project. By God's wonderful gift of sanctification, this is where he's leading us. And hopefully you exist more in this quadrant than you did last year. And maybe and hopefully significantly more than you did 5, 10, or 20 years ago. And the coolest part is that we have a hope that on the other side of this life, there will be no quadrant B, C, or D. Only A. But while we live in this body, we have to remember it's a journey, not a destination. And that we can say, like Paul did, he says, for this I toil, struggling with what? With all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. He's the builder. He's the watchman. So as I close, I just want to simply pray over us an old Puritan prayer entitled God's Cause. I think this beautifully articulates the truth of our text today. So as you think about these things, I, pray, I ask you to close your eyes and pray with me. Sovereign God, your cause, not my own, engages my heart. And I appeal to you with greatest freedom to set up your kingdom in every place where Satan reigns. Glorify yourself and I shall rejoice for to bring honor to your name is my sole desire. I adore that you are God and long that others should know it, feel it, and rejoice in it. Oh, that all men might love and praise you, that you might have all glory from the intelligent world. Let sinners be brought to you for your dear name. Lord, use me as you will. Do with me what you will but oh, promote your cause. Let your kingdom come. Let your blessed interest be advanced in this world. Oh, do bring great numbers to Jesus 
and let me see that glorious day and allow me to grasp for multitudes of souls. Let me be willing to die that, to that end. And while I live, let me labor for you to the utmost of my strength, spending time profitably in this work, both in health and in weakness. It is your cause and your kingdom I long for, not my own. Oh, answer this, our prayer. Amen.